I have seen over my years as a psychologist a number of people who have said that they have not suicided because okay. of their animal and they've been quite explicit about it mm -hmm. and they have said I you know I've got children I would do it I've got a partner I would do it the only thing that stopped me doing it is the pet and that's pretty interesting mm -hmm. and then it leaves that question of all right so then that person's vulnerable because if the pet's not there will they do that but this is information we need to know Is psychic. Hi, my name is Kayla Coe and thanks for tuning in to the Psychic Podcast. So today we have a special guest, Professor Anna Johansson. She is a registered psychologist with a PhD in medical education. She has done a lot of research in many fields including food and eating, pain, death, sex and relationships, but is also very interested in companion animals and their impacts on human health. In this episode, we discuss about the importance of animals in our lives and how they can impact our psychological, social, and physical health. And I guess I'll hand it over to you to introduce yourself. Uh, thank you very much. Yes, as you said, my name is Anna, and I'm a professor here in the School of Psychology at the University of Adelaide at the moment. But previously, I was in the School of Medicine, and I was in the discipline of psychiatry, I started working there back in 1987 mm -hmm. and I was employed to work with the MATES cohort which stands for Malaysia Australian Tertiary Education Scheme oh, and yeah. so there were about 50 students that came every year and they did what was called a bridging course to learn about studying in another place because the cultural differences are quite significant and especially we're so in the 1980s I think things are changing in Malaysia now yeah. but the uh, mate scheme enabled about 50 students to come every year to the University of Adelaide and they did upskilling and training and learning in Australia and then some of them went off to other unis around the country but about 30 or so remained at the University of Adelaide where they did either medicine or dentistry. So I was supposed to be on a contract and stay in psychiatry until the end of 1987. Mm -hmm. I ended up staying in psychiatry until 2013. <gasps> wow. I became a professor in psychiatry. Mm -hmm. I did my PhD in psychiatry and medical education. And I actually became the acting head of psychiatry. Wow. Um, which so was a great achievement, I thought. Was it that the school didn't want to let you go or did you not want to go? I was very sad to leave medicine. <laughs> I didn't want to leave medicine because it was basically where I'd known for mm -hmm. a long, long time. Yeah. But I was essentially born in psychology and immigrated to medicine. So I started <laughs> my studies in psychology here mm -hmm. in 1981. And after all that time in medicine, a posting became available for the head of psychology, which is a school. Mm -hmm. not a discipline so it was kind of an upgrade if you will a promotion to come over and take over the headship of the school so I did do that I started as I said at the very end of 2013 and I finished at the end of 2019 so I did six year term and now I'm back in the fold teaching and researching and doing wow. podcasts 
that's so impressive. I what a long journey. Like, well, if you live long enough, the journey's <laughs> long. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. I'm actually Malaysian. Like, oh, well, there I'm you an are. International so student. Okay, so, well, there you are. Yeah. The mate scheme was only open to Bumiputra. Oh, that's so interesting. So there was some, I felt some uncomfortable feelings about that. Um, what sort of uncomfortable feelings? Well, about why one group of people from Malaysia can be subsidised by the government to study uh, but not others. Yeah. But I became very close to many of the medical students during that period because as part of the MATE scheme I ran, I used to call them supplementary tutorials. So mm -hmm. tutorials where people who were struggling with language or struggling with concepts, mm -hmm. as long as they were psychological of course, they would come to, I think we used to run them three times a week. They were so popular that students who did not need them would come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I have colleagues now who were in them who laugh and joke about how they came in there just so they could get the cheats, mm. just because we had such a nice time. Yeah. But um, I remember, I can't remember what year it was, but maybe in 1990-something, a group of the mates said, right, Anna, we're taking you to Malaysia with us. So over the Christmas break, they uh, sent me from one household to the next. I went all over the states of Malaysia. Each family kept me for two days and passed me on. Wow. So I was there for three weeks. It was a very life-changing and interesting ethnographic experience. It must have been. I saw things yeah. that many other people would not get the privilege or honour to see. Um, was, was it very different from household to household? It was very different. Some of the families were very, very wealthy and some were not. Mm -hmm. Some or most were Muslim and very deeply religious mm -hmm. and so I needed to follow the rules. <laughs> the Chinese students, they didn't pass me on in the households but they would have me for lunch or dinner so that was the only time I could have alcohol. So, <laughs> okay. They were very much looked forward to lunches and dinners. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I learned a lot. It was a really great privilege, and I still keep in touch with many of those people. Oh, that's so lovely. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't know that you were involved in this little program, actually. It's quite big, isn't it? It was a big program, yeah. and it lasted for many years. Oh, I can't remember when the last intake was. Sometime in 2000 was the last intake. Oh, okay. Why did it end? Because the Malaysian government, quite rightly, when they started the program, were trying to upskill their workforce. Mm -hmm. And they were sending Malaysian students all over the world, so mm -hmm. UK, US, Canada, Australia. Mm -hmm. And once their people would come back to Malaysia because they were bound to return mm -hmm. to work in Malaysia, Right. They become the leaders in their profession, so they don't need to send students overseas. I see. And that's fantastic. Yeah. Wow, that's truly incredible. Thanks for sharing all that. Now, let's get into the topic of our episode today. So, you've done a lot of research in human and animal bonding and psychology. Mm -hmm. And so, what sort of brought you into this niche in psychology? Well, it's a very interesting question. And the answer <laughs> is that... As an academic, so mm -hmm. any of the people listening today who are academics or hoping to be academics, they will know that not only do we do teaching, but we also need to do research. And when we do our research, we are expected to apply for grant money. Mm -hmm. Now, because my PhD was in medical education and many of my papers are about teaching medical students and now mm -hmm. psychology students or both, there's not a huge pot of grant money available. The AA 
uh, RC or NHMRC and are usually going to give me you know, a couple of million dollars to study formative feedback in psychiatry rotations mm -hmm. and that's fine. So I needed to find an area where I might be able to apply for grant money. Now I'm a health psychologist and again many people won't know what that is so in psychology there are nine areas of endorsed practice. So when you're a registered psychologist you may just be a what we call a general psychologist, which is a bit of a misleading term, but you might not be endorsed. Or the most common endorsement people know about is clinical psychology. So they're the people who would perhaps sit mostly close to a psychiatrist. They're interested in mental illness mm -hmm. and curing, diagnosing, treating, working with people with mm -hmm. the pointy end of mental illness, like schizophrenia, serious depression, suicidality and so on. Now, if I'd been a, a medical professional, if I'd chosen that path, I reckon I probably would have been a GP or a <laughs> physician. I was much more interested in the relationship between physical health and mental health yeah. and looking more in a holistic way. Mm -hmm. In psychology, that area is called health psychology. So the training is with the biopsychosocial model, which... Mm -hmm is a model that all psychiatrists should know about yes. because it was proposed yes. by a psychiatrist. So I um, adhere to and live by that framework yeah. in my teaching, my research, my clinical practice. But I um, do lots of research in physical health and how that relates to mental health. Yes. So I thought mm, I could go for money in, in those areas, but there's lots of amazing people going for money in those areas. I was thinking, where could I go? that's less excited by, you know, less overwhelmed with, mm -hmm. with grant proposals. So a close colleague and I, Professor Helen Wirefield, who also used to be in psychiatry for a while, and she was actually the one who employed me to work there back in 1987, um, she was sitting me with one day and she said, well, you've got companion animals, you've got dogs. Mm -hmm. What about something on that? And I went, oh, yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, there's stuff <laughs> in there. So then on closer inspection... Uh, there's a whole huge field called anthrozoology, mm -hmm. which is a multidisciplinary field and it's contributed to by numerous different professionals, including some medical practitioners, though not many, some psychologists, but not many, lots of veterinarians, sociologists and these kinds of things. So I thought, oh, yes, let's have a go at that. I'll be able to get lots of money with that. Mm -hmm. Well, the sad story is... I think the first paper we wrote together was something like 2004 and in 2004 to 2020 I've received no funding. It wasn't as easy as I thought to get oh. money. However, however, you can still do good research without yes. income from mm -hmm. the government. So I did the first study, um, there's a, a psychiatrist, Dr John Simon, who was working in psychiatry at the time that okay. I was there back there in 2004 or whatever it was and I spoke to him about it and he very generously helped me to recruit some students, mm -hmm. uh, not students, sorry, patients. And so there were, I think there were three elderly women mm -hmm. and I interviewed them in depth, went to either the aged care facility, one was that, or the homes of mm -hmm. the two other people and listening to what they had to say about their animal, whether they didn't have it any longer, like the lady in the aged care facility or the two who were living in the community with their animal, I thought, yeah, this is a thing and it's an important thing because animals 
for many people, members of the family, and from a psychological, psychiatric, social justice viewpoint, they are very often not considered, and they should be. Uh, there's public health ramifications, mm -hmm. there's, as I say, human rights, animal rights, animal welfare, Yes. Uh, lots and lots of stuff. If I don't do anything from this podcast but could relay one thing, I beseech all of you, when you become a practitioner and you're taking your family history and you're asking who lives in the house or who who's there, you don't forget that the dog or the cat or the hamster or the gerbil or the fishbowl or whatever may be a core person with fur or scales or feathers that if you don't ask about, you might miss something. And if you don't ask about, you might not know why people are not doing things that you were hoping they would do or changing behaviour in a way that you recommend. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Like, it isn't just about, you know, passing on infections or any other zoonotic diseases that we're worried about, but they actually are involved in the person's life in a lot of ways. They are essentially family. Well, for some people, yeah. not all people. <laughs> no. And, and, you know, like, talking about zoonotic disease, mm -hmm. that's usually the least of people's problems. Yeah. But, of course, the biological approach instead mm -hmm. of the biopsychosocial approach, you would go straight for, like, oh, it's an infection risk. Yeah. They will yeah. trip over and fall and break their hip and so we'll have to take the cat away. <laughs> similar things. Well, these no. things happen. But the, the biological is mm -hmm. not necessarily the only or even the most powerful factor mm -hmm. to consider. So you touched on this family thing where you think that animals are considered family members. Mm -hmm. And would you say that there are any differences between a human family member and an animal family member? Well, that depends on the person that mm -hmm. you're asking. So, of course, they're different because yeah. they're different species. So but different. how about their effects on someone's health? I think just like humans, there are many humans scuttling around who may have no impact on your health or they may have an adverse impact on your health and I think that's true of companion animals as well mm -hmm. and also like animals in the environment and that we don't necessarily have living inside our house but are around us. But it depends very much on the individual. Helen and I, Helen Wyfield and I wrote some papers early on and other researchers have written about this too about an inverted U curve mm -hmm. between attachment and well-being. So what we proposed was that if you read all the papers that are done, if you did a systematic review or a, a review of the literature on what's out there, you'd find, first of all, that there's some really crappy, poor, methodologically conducted studies and lots of anecdotal studies, a bit like my interviewing the three old ladies. <laughs> Whilst that was really good for me to learn and I got it published, I don't know how I got it published because methodologically it was very weak. But what we, we proposed was that because whether animals are good for us or not is equivocal, so there's no solid answer one way or another, it's all very mixed mm -hmm. what comes out in the literature, we propose that maybe one of the reasons why we can't work out what's going on is because there's an inverted U-curve with attachment. So what that means is attachment, and you may have learnt about this already in your undergraduate or you won't necessarily until you do psychiatry, but you'll learn about John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. So um, attachment theory was proposed by someone called John Bowlby. Mm -hmm. who said that attachment is the linchpin around everything else in life. So 
if you feel loved and needed and wanted as a little person mm -hmm. and cared for and all your needs are, are met mm -hmm. and you, you love, whatever that word means, you're <laughs> attached to your caregiver, which doesn't have to be your biological parent, then your prospects for good mental health are much better than if you have more attachment. There's different styles and I won't give a lecture on attachment yeah. theory here. <laughs> Did he perhaps do a research on negligence in babies? Absolutely. So people whose um, caregivers are neglectful and where there's no safe haven, where you don't know yeah. that when you like need something, if you go to your caregiver, mm -hmm. that you will have that, whether that be food or warmth or safety yeah. or love. And there were some horrific animal experiments. So I'm an anti-vivisectionist. I can't bear unnecessary experiments. I know that some are necessary and I'm grateful for the animals for their sacrifice to us. There are some awful experiments done by someone called Harlow. Harlow. Uh, but Harlow monkeys where he took babies away from their mum oh, yeah. and put them on wire cage. Uh, mothers that were just giving milk out of a bottle but they were not real mothers and then he had some with cloth and then he had some with their real mothers and he was experimenting to see what happened well the animals that were not with their real mother and who were not with any kind of love fared very badly yeah i remember recalling another researcher that actually experimented on humans oh well many many people have but it was mary ainsworth okay. professor mary ainsworth yeah who did the, um, she called it the strange situation mm -hmm. experiments where she would have children coming in and out of rooms with their caregiver, which yeah. is quite often the mother, but as I say, it doesn't have to be. And then she was observing whether people have a secure attachment. So the child okay. has a secure attachment. So they go up to their caregiver and they go, yep, yeah, that's why caregiver and then they go play with their toys yeah. or very insecure attachment like clinging and terrified mm -hmm. not sure that caregiver will still be there if you turn around so remember reading that with extreme attachment it can be detrimental to health as well so yeah. if the human has a secure attachment to the animal whatever it is so like my two dogs at the moment are at home and i'm quite fine with that we have a secure attachment and they're quite fine without me there. They're mm -hmm. either with their dad or they're out, you know, in the garden or they're mm -hmm. somewhere and when I get home they'll say hello. So that's a secure attachment and then arguably that gives the best health outcomes, mental and physical health comes in our proposed theory. If you are not attached at all, but some people have dogs and they leave them out the bat, they never see them, they throw them a bone every now and again. If they don't want them anymore, they give them away and they don't really have any major attachment to them, mm -hmm. there'd be no health benefits. If you are down the other end of attachment, so you're extremely attached, you won't leave your animals, mm -hmm. you wouldn't go to hospital or go anywhere without your animals, like mm -hmm. asking to have your animal all the time with you when you go on the bus in the shops because you're so anxious about being away, that probably does not confer good health benefits. So that's the theory that we've tested in a few of our studies and a few other people have also tested that theory. But we need more research on it. Tell us about your two dogs. Well, I have two boys. Uh, <laughs> one is named Clarence Jones and the other is named Ralph Jones. Mm -hmm. um, they're not... One of them is Clary. The other one is Hamish. Hamish passed away. And mm -hmm. actually it's quite interesting when you live 
with the topics that you study, as we all often do. Um, <laughs> so I have written several papers about grief and loss because mm -hmm. the grief and loss of a animal companion can be as powerful and as strong as the loss of a human or sometimes even more so. Mm, yeah, it's definitely it's not something we really think about. I mean, unless you actually have your own pets. And I have two dogs of my own and I could never imagine not being with them and not having them by my side. Mm. Yeah. Well, you will have to imagine it because animals live less, less time than yeah. us, hopefully. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a, um, another area of research is with young children. Mm -hmm. Living with animals is often a good way to learn about life and death. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm. So, um, what are the possible mechanisms that would explain the health benefits that we can get from animal companions? And do you think that the benefits are reciprocated both ways? Well, the possible mechanisms, or well, one of them we've already talked about, is attachment. Because mm -hmm. we know that attachments are good for health. Yeah. Um, another one, there's quite a bit of work done on um, public health benefits. Mm -hmm. So people with dogs, mm -hmm. not all, but many, are more likely to do exercise mm. because the dog requires it yeah so that's a mechanism there was a famous study done oh gosh i'm looking at my bookcase which you on the podcast can't see but somewhere there's a book which i'm just going to drive off to consult here it is so a famous book was written in the 1980s and interestingly enough it was written by alan beck who's an animal ecologist and aaron katcher who was a professor of psychiatry. So this has been a thing for some time. But they did the first kind of work looking at the mechanisms of decreased blood pressure oh. um, when touching your own animals. So they were looking at heart rate and blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And there's been subsequent work to show that, yes, you know, when you're, like, touching and holding your attachment figure... Mm -hmm that it can reduce your blood pressure and heart rate. What do you think goes through with that to have those outcomes? Like maybe calming anxiety or... Well, there's a lot of work that shows when you like stare into the eyes of your dog that there are hormones that are released both sides. Oh, like oxytocin? Correct. Oh, um, yeah. And there's other work that's been done that shows a decrease in cortisol. Mm -hmm. So on both directions. So early work only looked at humans, but more later work, especially with veterinarians and others getting involved. Mm -hmm. So often in research teams, there might be a psychologist and a veterinarian and an anthropologist and a few philosophers that are quite deeply into this area looking mm -hmm. at animal rights because there's a question too of whether animals are there to be used by humans for therapeutic purpose. Yeah. And many people would say, of course they are, and many people would say, of course they're not. But coming back to public health then, so exercise, the same with people who have horses, it's exercise. Another mechanism is community health and social engagement. So mm -hmm. people with animals, even like today in this podcast, we share stories about animals. So people find a connection with other humans through their mm -hmm. animals. There's a lot of work that's been done on dog parks. Mm -hmm. So people who maybe don't have lots of people to talk to or even they might have a million people to talk to, but they might look forward to going to the dog park every night or every weekend or whatever and there they meet other people and they might not know the people's names, they only know the dog's names, mm -hmm. but they can spend hours 
chatting away. Yeah. Uh, dog training, horse clubs, mm. cat clubs. <laughs> cat clubs, name it, everything. Lizard clubs. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I've had a few patients with lizards and snakes and things. I'm not really – I'm more familiar <laughs> with the cat, dog, horse world myself. I'm really curious now, like, for those who have spiders, do they um, actually have calming effects? <laughs> it's interesting you should ask me that because I went and gave a talk down at Roseworthy and one of the very senior people in Roseworthy said that that can't be true, that people can get health benefits from spiders or ants or so forth. But as a psychologist, I'd say, why not? Yeah. Why not? If this is, and maybe they're not your pet spiders, or maybe they are, maybe they're not your pet ants, or maybe they are, but people get great pleasure from uh, creatures in the garden. Mm -hmm. So there was a big study at UniSA 10 years ago or so about meet your blue tongues, which are lizards in the garden. And so all people all around Adelaide had to phone in to a hotline and say what their lizards were up to. So they were collecting data on lizards. And they discovered there that. People name these lizards, they watch them and, you know, fret about them if they're not there. They celebrate with their little lizards when they do lizard-type <laughs> things. I don't know what lizards do, but, you know, they must, like, take skin off themselves or have babies or something. Whatever they do, people get really into it. And the same with birds. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are, like, excited about the birds in their backyard and it means something. Yeah. to them so I don't see why you wouldn't be attached to spider if that was what made you feel good about life that is a very biopsychosocial model it is it is um you know they they all can assist humans or not yeah it depends on the human mm -hmm. I don't think it's the spider's purpose in life to please <laughs> me please you. for example yeah but it, but it might does be my purpose sometimes. in life to, you know, have a portfolio of spider photos or tell all my friends about my spiders or... <laughs> Humans are weird. Humans are fascinating. <laughs> yes. They get up to. Yeah. yeah. So, you published a longitudinal qualitative study in 2015 on the experience of being a guide dog puppy raiser uh -huh. volunteer. Uh -huh. So, could you give us a snapshot of what goes into training and if you've had any personal experiences? Well, the reason why that study came about is because one of my PhD students at the time, Chris Muldoon, was the manager of the Royal Society for the Blind. And he was looking at the relationship between the guide dog mm -hmm. and the vision-impaired person. Mm -hmm. And so I went down to Royal Society for the Blind, RSB, and because I love animals myself and love dogs, so I was very excited because there was, you know, like all these dogs everywhere. <laughs> and then he said, oh, would you like to meet a litter of puppies? So they were at another place, not at RSB. So I remember being so pleased to be lying on the floor with nine or ten little brown chocolate Labradors climbing oh. all over me. It was like heaven. Heaven. Oh. I thought, yeah, there's <laughs> oxytocin going everywhere. It's like so cute. Oh. So cute. And so then that got me thinking and we decided to to follow that actual litter. So I was thinking, well, I'm falling in love just by, you know, picking up one of these soft little warm bodies and little brown eyes, but I know they're not mine and I have to give them back right? <laughs> and I can't keep 10 chocolate Labradors at home, so that's all fine. But what I was thinking was, so these now go to a trainer for a year and mm -hmm. then they go someone else. Mm. How? 
could you give away this creature? Like, because looking at attachment again, like, wouldn't mm. you become like, oh, this is mine. I want to keep this baby. Yeah. So I thought, well, this is interesting. And then I also thought about that question before about animal welfare. Now, these dogs are looked after very well, but their life is not like a dog. They are a servant mm. to humans. And I wondered whether they like that or not. Mm. I thought, I wonder whether dogs like that because my boys are very disobedient. I said, don't do that. And they say, we'll do whatever we think we want to do at this time. Or, you know, if I said, you know, you can't go to the toilet until I say, they would wee on the floor in my house probably. Like they will just do whatever they want to a large extent and that's because they're dogs. Yeah. But guide dogs have very strict training and they're not allowed to, like I say, go to the toilet unless they're told. So they have to go to the toilet on command or wait. They have to work so mm. they're when they're in their harness they're at work and they learn that they're not allowed to eat things have you seen how they've been trained to I do have. that i have and so that's why in this longitudinal study i thought it would be interesting to see how it all works mm-hmm. and it was interesting because it was very mixed so there were some people out of that nine people because mm-hmm. each puppy went to an individual family or person some puppies didn't make it very early on because they had hip problems, oh, okay. like hip dysplasia or some other problems. So they're like highly bred and highly selected genetically. Mm-hmm. So from memory, the semen for this batch of puppies had come from Sweden or somewhere like expensive process to make these puppies. Mm-hmm. They're not just random dogs from, you know, out the you know, backyard <laughs> breeder or something. Yeah. So some of them don't make it for physical reasons. Some of them don't make it for psychological reasons because mm-hmm. you have to be pretty confident little puppy but not too smart because if you're too smart, you might say, no, I'm not doing that. If you're not smart enough, you won't be able to learn it. So I think that's one of the reasons why they pick Labradors because they're, you know, I think there's other breeds that are too clever who just say no, like Border Collies and so on are very smart. Yeah. I think they would just say, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so it was interesting to see I wasn't studying the dogs themselves. There was some, someone from the vet, veterinarian school, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Susan Hazel. She followed the dogs. And I followed the people and I followed them with my students. So I must acknowledge the hard work of students who interviewed them as well as myself. Um, Some people found the whole experience soul-destroying and quite depressing Mm -hmm. and got rid of the dog fairly early on because of the rules and regulations in being a a puppy foster person. What were the rules? Like I'm describing, like the dogs have got strict protocols about what they're allowed to do Mm. and what they're not. They're not allowed to just be... a puppy okay. running around yeah. and jumping around the house and, you know, having an accident on the carpet or chewing up the floorboards or any of those things mm. that puppies do. They need to do as they're required and they need to learn, for example, when they go for a walk, they can't just sniff the ground mm-hmm. and rush up to people and say yeah. hello. They have to learn to, they're working. Mm. So it takes a special person to be able to be that disciplined and a special dog that's able to withstand withstand and be agreeable to it. Mm. Um, and as I say, they're not in any way ill-treated, but it's not a straightforward arrangement. Uh, and so, yeah, not all the, the foster parents lasted the race. Mm. Um, I remember in the study, one of them said, this is just like having another kid in the house. I've already got three kids in here. I can't do it. It's another kid. It's too stressful. Um and again, you know, if she didn't have to train that dog as a guide dog, that might have been a bit less stressful. 
And then I I followed them right up until the last part where they are relinquishing them for the vision impaired person to take over. Yeah. And I had thought, oh my god, how how do people say goodbye to a creature that's been in their house all that time? Like I'd be like, no. <laughs> um, couple yeah. of the dogs that failed, they were adopted by the foster family, mm-hmm. so they were happy because they got to keep the dog but others really it was really interesting to see the altruism so Mm -hmm. a couple of those families just said no no this is our this is the deal this is what I signed up for I'm I'm doing good for the vision impaired person and I'm passing on now did you get to observe like what happened after that when the dog was passed on I would have loved to have done then another longitudinal study (laughs) (laughs) and then found out what happened to the dogs with yeah. the vision impaired people, but I um, lost puff, and of course no funding for that, so <laughs> moved on to something else. Yeah, I also found it really hard to publish that study because, as you will all know, listening that in science, when the um, answers are not straightforward or positive, then sometimes people don't really like the answers. So the answers were not warm. So. Yeah. Plus it was a small study, it was only one litter of puppies. As I say though, we interviewed them at three or four time points and it was over a year, so it was actually quite a big piece of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it wasn't so easy to study, publish, so maybe someone listening would like to do that for their PhD or something. <laughs> and contact you maybe? Absolutely, <laughs> To supervise, yeah. Of course. <laughs> I should talk to a lady this morning who's thinking to do something. Oh. Yeah, okay. and um, I was talking to people in the renal unit who do lots of research, mm-hmm. um, headed by Dr. Shilpa and uh, her team, and... We have been talking about various animal-assisted possibilities, mm-hmm. including last week we were brainstorming some stuff. So Ooh, there's some projects there for someone. Ooh, okay. Ring me if you're interested. <laughs> we'll leave her details in the description so well, you can find her email there. Call, yeah, <laughs> call me, Anna, or so, email me. I've read that pets have the potential to help adults with Alzheimer's disease mm-hmm. or dementia. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on how and why that might be? So, yes, there is a bit of research on, on that. I think, again, it comes back to those biological mechanisms of holding something mm-hmm. soft and warm <laughs> that that's living and gentle and brings back memories. Again, though, it's not for everyone. Mm-hmm. So the research, again, is equivocal. It's it's <laughs> not true that if you, like, go into an old age nursing home and drag a dog in there and have it running around everywhere that everyone will be happy. Some people have a fear of dogs. Some people will evoke unpleasant memories. Mm-hmm. Going back to the about that very first paper where mm-hmm. I talked to the elderly woman of the three, mm-hmm. um, she talked to me about being separated from her dog because she was ended up in residential facility and um, her dog, she said, was taken away and was she was told that it had gone to, you know, a special place, but of course it would have been euthanized, which is usually the fate of elderly people's dogs if they don't have anyone, unless it's a designer dog or a very young dog, but, uh, you know, dogs with a, you know, a bit of a chewed ear or a bit of hair falling out or overweight mm-hmm. or not very personable which can happen to all of us, but <laughs> those dogs quite often get some of the blue dream mm-hmm. and they're not, not going anywhere else to live. 
So these kind of th thoughts are deeply distressing and the thought of having another dog around actually distressed her a lot. She said, I don't want to mm. think about that stuff because it makes me remember my own dog and that makes mm. me sad. But there are a number of studies. Actually, interestingly enough, the audience may be interested to know that one of my honours students in psychology did a project a couple of years ago and he did it on chickens. His name is Luke McCauley and he's now studying to be a health psychologist like me. And um, he did some work on people's relationships with their chickens, but the relevance of this to elderly people is in the UK there's a big movement at the moment and it's coming more into other countries of chickens in nursing homes. Oh. Wow. And so they have a chicken coop, coop. thing <laughs> with the chooks all running around and the elders go in there and then get the eggs out and they can pick up the chickens and cuddle them. And so there's, if you look mm. on YouTube, there's some interesting visions of very elderly people clutching a chook that's got a you know a bit of a sheet down on their lap so that when it does a poop it doesn't land on there wow because they're not house trained chickens i'm not yeah. sure how i feel about chicken <laughs> apparently <laughs> the um the benefits of it are enormous oh okay that many elderly people find chickens very good and they like getting the eggs and then they can take the eggs in and give them to the kitchen or make stuff or count how many eggs there are or <laughs> feed um, the chickens yeah. and you know keep charts about health of the chickens and mm. presumably eat the chickens when there's no more eggs I'm not sure oh, no. how does that work well, that's, that's be very attached. well we've also done a lot of work <laughs> on um, people who say they love animals but eat meat yeah how about that it's fascinating people and people's um Outrage in some cultures would be furious to see that somebody eats, I don't know, what are people eat, whale, they'll go, oh, this is outrageous, it's disgusting, um, but they will eat a chicken or a cow or a kangaroo and it's yeah, like, Australia, well, what's the difference? Who eats their own native animal. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. What's the difference? Or, you know, people get very upset about, you know, in some cultures people eat dog. Mm. Well, if you eat meat or wear leather, which almost all of us in some way or another, unless you're a street vegan and you never touched anything, you wouldn't be able to have any vaccinations or anything, which have all come from animals one way or another. Wow. Or, any, or any of the tablets you've taken have been tested on animals. So I think it was David Suzuki who said that, I can't remember the exact words, but he said something around, you know, if for us to live, someone else has to die. So no matter how much you try and skirt around it. Wow. Animals have really sacrificed a lot first. Well, they might not have willingly done so, but we choose that for them. Yeah, that's really sad. Or really, you know, a thing, a privilege that we should mm. not abuse. We shouldn't, definitely shouldn't. And so what are the obstacles or disadvantages with animal companions that have impeded our research or understanding and implementation into healthcare? That's a big question. Um, well, I think the research one we've kind of touched on about the fact that there's so many poor methodologies. The only way you really could establish whether or not an animal was good for you in real terms, for humans, is to do a randomised controlled trial. Mm. And it's impossible because yeah. you'd need to have a control group that didn't know they had an animal, mm -hmm. like a placebo. <laughs> so people have done that. So they've... 
they've given them a plant, it's like the placebo, and they say you have to water the plant, well, it's really not the same. Um, in some Asian countries, including Japan, they're like trying to nut this all out, and so they've made these really realistic robot dog things that they try and use as one of the control groups. Mm -hmm. The other thing is randomization to groups. So you'd have to randomly put people in groups whether they do or don't get an animal and how's that going to work because who's going to agree to be in a study where they might end up with, you know, an Alaskan Malamute. You'd have to match all of the dogs or cats or whatever they are would have to be exactly the same, mm -hmm. like breed and everything, and then there'd be the variation in personality um, yeah. It's absolutely impossible <laughs> to do an RCT in the way that you might do a drug trial to like yeah. say categorically, yes, this works and no, it doesn't. Um, and this is not even going into the ideas about actual therapeutic approaches. So mm -hmm. then there's like animal-assisted therapy. So not even talking about that, just having a, an animal in the house. or People have looked at epidemiology data and tried to work it out that way. Um, there's some people in the UQ, University of Queensland, who've done some really big, big studies, and the answers all come out, famous word, equivocal. Like, you equivocal. can't tell, and quite often it's because the questions that were asked at the baseline were not very sophisticated, so mm -hmm. like saying, have you got an animal? Or like, do you have a pet? Um, I try not to use the word pet because that's seen as pejorative in many of the publications now. They won't publish with the mm -hmm. word pet. Okay. And also it gets mixed up with the PET scan. Oh, so when you're doing a right. search in PubMed, you get all these hits with <laughs> PET scan. I don't want that. So, yeah, um, it's just very, very messy. Mm -hmm. When you ask somebody, have you got a companion animal, if they say yes, so what? As we talked about with the attachment, does that mean it's just something out the back or something that's actually your mum's or mm. you, you see it once a year? Yeah. So okay. it all makes no sense. So... We don't know, and it's very hard. It's a, a, a useful area to to work in, but only if it's for, for good, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say for finding the answers would be so helpful for some people, like as doctors and psychologists, we should be advocating for people. Mm -hmm. So if you had a patient who desperately, desperately wanted to be with their animal, but they didn't have enough money or they're homeless or they have a psychiatric illness and there's been questions about their capacity or they're going into residential facility. If we could demonstrate that the outcome for the human and the animal would be better if they were kept together and we had data and evidence for that, we would be doing such a public service mm. for people. Currently, there's people all over the world and all over Adelaide right now who are having to relinquish their animals or having their animals forcibly taken. Like a lot of rental properties won't allow pets. If we could show that actually we would improve people's quality of life and therefore their mental, physical, psychological health mm -hmm. as per the biopsychosocial uh, bio model, yeah. then wouldn't that be good? But at the moment, we can't do it. So it's just case by case. Yeah. And some doctors are really good and some psychologists are really good mm. and they will try and advocate, but yeah. our powers are not strong. Yeah, especially when the research is so multifaceted and not black and white. As many of these things never are. Yeah. It's just all... It's very complicated. Complicated yeah. and complex. And, and then when we do think that it might improve experience, so there's been work where an animal's come onto a ward, mm -hmm. usually, again, that research is very dodgy and not very rigorous. Yeah. 
because it might have been, you know, the dog came on, a Delta dog came on a children's hospital ward for 10 minutes and the children all clapped and then people publish that and say, so therefore it's great, we should have it everywhere. Yeah. That's not true. It's just not true. Uh, that's not evidence, in my opinion. It's hard enough to be studying on one species, like the human brain and how the psychology works in humans, mm. but to also bring in another species where we don't exactly know everything about it either and then put them together and study their relationship. It's sort of like, like a power to two kind of complexity. Mm-hmm. It is. But even without bothering to study the dog or the horse or the cat, if you put animals in hospitals, first of all, you have to get through the infectious disease control people. Yes. And they may not say yes, which is quite fair enough. Mm-hmm. And then all the practicalities. So I do recall uh, in the children's hospital, we were talking about could we bring a Delta dog in there? And then I remember hearing an anecdotal story about someone bought a pony into the starlight room and then the pony did a big poop. <laughs> Like, what were these people thinking to bring the pony inside anyway? So then that turned everybody off the idea because, which is fair enough. And then, you know, family members may be unhappy about having animals wandering around. Um, The nursing staff, cleaners might say we don't want this. So there's a lot of practical barriers. Mm -hmm. And also coming back to that idea about an attachment, I don't know about you for your dogs, Mm -hmm. but for me with mine, if I was an old lady and I was dying, so hopefully it'll be when I'm an old lady and not sooner, then I would want to visit from my dogs, not from some stranger's dog. I would want to be with my own family members, not someone else's. Yeah. And again, that's quite difficult. Although palliative care, they're often very good and will make it possible for people to see their, their own animals where they mm-hmm. can. But it's not straightforward. It's not straightforward. Yeah. And again, that's that's where I think that we as health professionals, one of our duties is to advocate Yeah. and help those who can't mm-hmm. voice what they need or what they think they would like. And that's why coming back to my original point was if nothing else, is remembered from today but that please don't forget when you're taking the genealogy to ask people about their non-human family members yeah because that might tell you something really important i'm definitely gonna do that now yeah well every consultation i have seen over my years as a psychologist a number of people who have said that they have not suicided because, because of their animal. And they've been quite explicit about it. Mm-hmm. And they have said, I, you know, I've got children, I would do it. I've got a partner, I would do it. The only thing that stopped me doing it is the pet. And that's pretty interesting. Mm. And then it leaves that question of, all right, so then that person's vulnerable because if the pet's not there, will they do that? But this is information we need to know. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? As clinicians, we need to know this stuff and work with people and get them ready for the grief. Mm -hmm. Well, we've ended on quite a solemn note. but but a happy note. (laughs) It's a happy note because there's stuff we can do. Yeah. And it shows the importance of animals in human life. Well, it was so nice having you on our podcast today. And it's a great privilege to be asked. Well, it's so refreshing as well to hear something not that talked about in psychiatry or Mm. psychology, Mm. in fact. 
So it was really good insight, and I bet all of our listeners would have enjoyed it in some or they, way. Well, they've turned off by now. <laughs> well, if they're still here, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> They're still interested and maybe want to contact you. Absolutely. Anytime. Anytime. Well, I was actually looking here. I printed something out, but we didn't talk about it. But that's all right. You can ask me back another day. But one of the psychiatry trainees for her old age psychiatry project, she did a project on psychiatrist's views of the human animal body and its relevance to old age mental health and illness. Mm. So I'm always happy to see I'm Kayla Ko. Thanks for joining us on the Psychic Podcast. This is an Adelaide University Psychiatry Society project sponsored by PIF. PIF provides lots of information and great events for medical students and doctors interested in psychiatry and mental health. Check them out on Facebook at Psychiatry Interest Forum. And if you're interested in any research opportunities with Professor Anna Johansson, please find our contact details in the description below. For more updates, be sure to follow us on Instagram at AUPS underscore or Facebook at Adelaide University Psychiatry Society. And share your thoughts by emailing us at uniadelaide.psychsociety at gmail.com.